Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit podcast. I'm editor and producer Margaret Fuhrer here with another interview episode for you all. This week, we are very excited to have two leaders of Dance Data Project on the pod. Dance Data Project is using data as a weapon, and a very effective one, in the fight against gender inequity in dance, particularly ballet. Elizabeth Eintema, aka Liza, is the organization's president and founder, a lawyer and philanthropist, and longtime champion of gender equality. Rebecca Farrell, aka Becky, is its research lead and programming consultant, in addition to being a PhD candidate in arts administration. Over the past few years, DDP has published a slew of research reports looking at everything from the gender makeup of ballet company leadership to the number of female choreographers in ballet season programming. It recently widened its scope to include contemporary and modern dance companies, and as you'll hear, is hoping to expand even further in that direction. In addition to documenting the severity of gender inequity with all of this data, DDP also offers resources and programs to help women and advocates in the field. This is a tiny organization that is making a significant impact in the dance world thanks to the tenacity and resourcefulness of its team, with Liza and Becky leading the way. And they have just launched several new initiatives that we're eager for you to hear about. So here are Liza and Becky. Liza, Becky, hi, thank you so much for coming on the Dance Edit podcast. Yay! Thank you so much, Margaret. We're both, I think, really excited to be here and talk about the work we're doing. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Actually, I love when we have this um, problem, quote unquote problem, but since we have multiple female voices on the pod today, would you mind each briefly saying hello and then your name so listeners can put names to voices? Hi, everyone. I am Becky Farrell, and so happy to be here today. I am the research lead and um, programming consultant for Dance Data Project. Yay, we're so lucky to have her. Um, Hi, folks. It's Elizabeth Liza Eintema. I am the president and founder of Dance Data Project. You know, I often start these interviews by noting, like, oh, we have so much to talk about. But in your case, saying that actually feels inadequate. Dance Data Project is doing so much right now. And I'm really eager to discuss all of the the various projects that you have going on. But I want to start first with a couple of bigger picture questions. So the first one is, you know, it seems like there's relatively little data collection and sort of metrics based analysis happening in the dance field. Why does dance need more data? What does it give us the power to do? Yeah, so it's vital to have metrics based data to really clearly outline issues of equity and transparency, especially in the ballet field, which is what we're focused on. There are things that are talked about, but it's important to have concrete numbers that can be referenced and utilized to change gender imbalance in the dance sector. It's really easy for someone to kind of say off the cuff that ballet companies with the largest budget program the least amount of women or that women get paid significantly less than male counterparts. Um, It's pretty easy to kind of brush that off, but when you have the data to back it up, people really start to listen. And that's where we're seeing the change happen. This is a massive question that I know will be answered in more detail as we talk specifically about the projects you're working on. But to sort of give an overview, what are Dance Data Project's central goals? What are the key issues that it's working to address? And Becky, you've already started getting into that with your previous answer. So Margaret, I'll take that one. Um, 
So I started Dance Data Project because I didn't see opportunities from women in leadership, whether that's choreographic, artistic, or executive positions. And I was really startled. I did a ton of research before going ahead and founding DDP that we are the only organization focused on serving the needs of the overwhelming majority of the dance workforce, which is female and is underpaid or very frequently unpaid. So that can be documenting the gender pay gap between men and women, or how few of the classically based companies are commissioning women, um, particularly for those super lucrative full evening works. But we are also an extremely practical organization. And so my goal initially was to identify and document the problem of lack of female leadership and opportunities, but then what do you do about it? And how do you how do you fix that? So we're focusing on providing solutions. And that can be as simple as the banner headline that runs across our homepage that organizes upcoming grant scholarships and fellowships for extremely busy women in the field or men if they want to go to our website. Uh, but we're also focusing on the, the culture at ballet companies and trying to improve it, which goes back to my background as a management labor attorney. Before we started recording, Liza, you were talking about how the expertise of Becky and of other team members has become so critical to the work and to the mission of Dance Data Project and how you've sort of become an incubator for just great female talent. Did you want to talk a little more about that? So the organization has expanded in ways that I had never anticipated. And one of the great joys has been my team. I have the best, the most talented team in the world. Um, everybody's got other jobs. Every A lot of um, folks are volunteering part of their time. If you look at our board and our advisory council, an, ex an extraordinary array of talents. Um, one of our board members is the um, MD, PhD, and statistics candidate. We have MBAs, we have attorneys, but we're also hiring and giving real work to high school aged interns. And boy, are they spectacular. And I'll let Becky talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's really great to be able to work with so many young female researchers. That was something that really drew me to DDP. I know Liza and I um, got to meet during my time at Dance USA. And then as I started my PhD journey, I remember jumping on a Zoom with her, being like, hi, can we talk about data? Can we just nerd out for a minute? And then started to hear about all of the new upcoming things. It's very exciting to be able to be, to be part of that. And with that, to be able to train young researchers that are high school or in their first year of college was just incredible because I didn't have that, right? Like this is me in my PhD program saying, oh my gosh, how can I help? How can we help each other? And then to be able to kind of shepherd along and help um, these young researchers, these female researchers, it's incredible. No one else is doing this work. So it's just great to be part of this team. Yeah, and one of, the other thing I want to emphasize is that um, although we are focused on um, promoting women and, and girls, um, I'm very much aware of the barriers that exist for young women of color to work in STEM and to get opportunities to do significant research. So we are really focused on creating a diverse, yep. diverse team, advisory council, and board. And that means age. That means yep. um geographic. We don't want everybody from New York. We don't want everybody from an Ivy League. And I guess I, I would just say, whoo, there's a lot of smart people out there. <laughs> well, so let's start talking now about some of these specific programs and projects that, that you're working on. And I wanted to begin with your gender equity index, which you announced a few weeks ago. 
because it sounds like a potentially just game-changing development for the field. So for those who might not yet have heard about it or who might not know about the idea of a gender equity index more broadly, can you talk a little about how it will work and what you're hoping it will accomplish? I love it. I love it. I love the gender equity index. This is another thing when Liza and I were talking early on. I was like, ooh, yes, please. Let, let, let me be part of this. So this is really the first time this tour concept has ever been applied to the performing arts. So Liza, myself, and the research team really spent a great deal of time studying gender equity um, indices from Bloomberg, United Nation, McKinsey, and others. And we really wanted to put the issue of gender equity in terms that the general public would understand. So something that's really digestible. So for us, we're taking an additive approach. So companies will gain points for every area in which they are working towards equity. So some of these categories include publishing their most recent tax returns, publicly disclosing pay ranges, publication and training codes of conduct, where, where are those on their website, who gets those, as well as what are the reporting mechanisms for sexual assault, harassment, bullying, and how many works are choreographed by specific genders, and which of those genders have roles in executive and artistic leadership. So how it's broken down is commissions is 55%, leadership is 25%, and then the survey on practices and protocols is 20%. Something that was really important to us is, you know, we want to wake up the stakeholders. So we're talking about audiences, board of directors, foundations, journalists. We really want people to know that even though this is a female-dominated field, it is still the men who tend to hold the title, prestigious, higher-paying positions. And they receive the most like lucrative, high-profile artistic commissions. And really, additionally, with all the repeated ongoing scandals involving sexual harassment and assault in the field, we wanted to be really laser-focused um, on individual companies creating a safe, respectful environment for all of those who walk through the door. So multi-pronged. <laughs> I would just add that there, there tends to be this sort of it's always been this way, particularly in ballet. It's always been this way. Nothing's ever going to change. You just got to put up with it. And I think both Becky and I and all the members of our team are essentially super optimistic people that are interested in practical solutions. And I know from my work in the legal arena, you can make changes with protocols and procedures, just like election law is important and you know certifying results. Similarly, you can change culture if the correct procedures and protocols are in place. And you don't have to be a massive company. You don't have to be have a budget of over 30 million to put those guardrails in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can make real change by offering, creating and offering the resources that people need to reach the positions of power that you are hoping these female and minority candidates ultimately will, which is leading into the next question, the next initiative, you're raising the bar curriculum. A training program designed to increase the number of female and minority candidates for leadership positions in the arts. What does that involve? Why mm -hmm. is it so crucial? And how does it tie into your data-driven work? Go Becky. <laughs> okay. I really, I'm like such a big fan of raising the bars. It's again, one of those initiatives where it's like, yeah, can I work on this? <laughs> So for me, when I was thinking about this and when Liza and I were really talking about this, it's, it's really crucial because having the tools to negotiate contracts or if you want to start a 501c3 company, getting comfortable with budgets, programming a successful season, these are skills that are directly tied to dance leadership. 
and help women apply for executive and artistic positions that they may not have felt confident to go for um, in the past. And the way it really ties into our data is because we want more women in these positions, right? Like we're seeing the lack of this and we want to make sure that they're being able to interview for these jobs and getting these jobs. Our series is actually completely free um, and accessible on the DDP website. And each session is actually accompanied by a tangible resource. So viewers can watch, rewatch each episode and then utilize the assets to really compile a like a robust toolkit to help build their careers. So no paywalls, no barriers in that way, which was vital for us. Listeners will have all those links for you in the show notes. And I would just add, by the way, that if there are any guys out there who want to be better applicants, why not take advantage of all these free resources that we have up on the website? We can talk a little bit more broadly about this, but Margaret, I think you see it from where you are. And Becky, you certainly know this. The field is changing. It's getting a lot more challenging and it's not good enough just to be really good looking and point your feet well and have a big Instagram following. You really need to understand uh, how to interact with board of directors, how to fundraise, what a budget, what a spreadsheet looks like. What do you do in the middle of a crisis? You know, how, how do you prepare for it? How do you create a strategic plan that actually has impact? What does a really impactful community relations program, not just to check the box for the gala, look like? And I think everybody can benefit by training in those areas. Yeah. Yeah. Any any dance artist coming into an artistic leadership position, unless they've had previous administrative experience, they're going to be unprepared, essentially. That's why this kind of stuff is so important. Speaking of which, over the past few years, there's been just a remarkable amount of turnover in ballet company leadership, artistic directors, executive directors, top tier. So at the risk of asking an obvious question, and you've already started to answer this one too, why is the gender gap at that level an especially important problem to address? And have you seen meaningful progress start to happen on that front? How, how long do we have again? I know. It's all <laughs> dissertation prompts. Yeah. I think this is why data is so important. And that's why I want um, Becky to really um, dig into the numbers a little bit with you. There have been some remarkable earth shattering, never thought I would see it, literally stood up and danced around my home office changes. So Tamara Rojo, Susan Jaffe, mm -hmm. running two of the largest, most prestigious ballet companies in the United States. Never thought I would see the day. Brilliant choices. Also, can I just say a proper search, not a casual behind the scenes anointing, which usually happens and, and then transitions it from one male artistic director to another. I think we're going to see real change with these two women who embody a lot of the qualities we were talking about. One has a PhD, the other's been a dean. I mean, it's it's a new day. On the other hand, and I really want Becky to jump in here, those brilliant headlines and sometimes um, companies, I would, I would call it performative hygiene, and I've stolen that phrase, um, with regard to uh, female choreographers, particularly women of color, can really hide the dismal, dismal numbers overall. And it's important that we recognize those and not get too excited, although it is important about the changes at the top. We still continue to see that it's the smaller companies. Um, Christine Cox at Ballet X comes to mind immediately, who are programming women, bringing new voices to the table. I will say, though, I am encouraged 
seeing, for example, the Joffrey and ABT collaborate together, the Joffrey, again, recommissioning women, Sarasota Ballet, recommissioning Gemma Bond, because what we've seen in the past is one and done. What we're not seeing, and I really think we need to be aware of and talk about, is women are not getting the full evening world premiere commissions. And in the next season, we're seeing sort of a retreat to safety. And I'll let Becky talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I know that, Margaret, while we're, you know, getting ready for this, you know, thinking about how bad is gender equity in the dance industry, it's pretty horrendous. So looking at 2022, in the largest 50 companies, women made up 30% of artistic directors, while men made up 70%. And then if you get more granular and look at the largest 10, those percentages change um, from 20% and 80%. So only two female artistic directors, which Liza just highlighted. And then when you start thinking about pay equity, what male um, ADs are paid versus women in the largest 50 U.S. ballet companies in FY 2020, women earn 63 cents for every dollar earned by a man um, as an artistic director. And just for a little bit of comparison, because this was really interesting to me and the research team, in FY 2019, women earned 73 cents on the dollar. So women are actually earning less than before, which was a a staggering trend. And then season overview, which is a report that we just released, among the largest 150 ballet and classically influenced companies, 29% of the works were choreographed by women. Um, and 21, 22 performances, and only 12% of the works um, comprised of an evening length, mixed bill or full length um, by women. So we just continue to drop also. So for me, the thing is companies just can't really check the box like, oh, we hired a female. Yay, we did it. They choreographed a 10 minute piece. Um, It's not sustainable for these female artists. And we're also seeing that the smaller companies, Mm. those are the ones that are being led by females. They're commissioning females consistently they're putting all that support into into the female dance workforce which is what we want to see but why are the largest 50 that have all of these resources not not exactly not doing that so that's where the frustration comes when we look at the numbers you know we check things like 50 times really and truly we verify and verify and verify and we're always it it is a it is a sad moment so when we do see these great things like liza said like yes We have two very strong female artistic directors. We want more. It can't just be 20%. It can't just be 20%. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to expand this out a little bit because from my, because I'm on several other boards. And so from my, my donor sort of interest in, in the arts perspective, you know, um, Jennifer Homans famously said, you know, ballet is stuck and it really seems to be the case. There is, what appears to be particularly in coming out of the pandemic, a race to safety, which I actually think is incredibly self-destructive for the art form. Somebody actually said, which I couldn't believe in a press release, we wanna see real ballet. And real ballet apparently means all white, all male. But because companies don't wanna spend money on big new productions, because they're very expensive, it appears what's happening is as they're going back to their existing repertoire. And when your existing repertoire is overwhelmingly white and male, we're seeing, you know, I mean, I like Balanchine as much as the next Same. person, but there's there's got to be something else out there. It's very like Hollywood. You know, we need a franchise, right? So the the version of, you know, the Avengers like for the Iron Man. Yeah. 
is let's do a Ratmansky, let's do a Peck, let's do a Christopher Wielden because that's less risky. But if things don't change, we're going to start seeing the end of the summer intensive and the beginning of the nutcracker, which is going to run through March. I mean, there's got to be something interesting out there that will bring audiences back because they're not coming back right now. And what do you think is the why behind why smaller companies are doing so much better on this front? That's a complicated question, but it is indeed. And and I have to be cautious here because DDP stays in our lane. We are the what, not the why. But everybody's nervous. And I do think that this sort of drive to safety is eventually going to be almost suicidal for the art form. You look at something like Ballet X or um, some of the other smaller companies that women are running, and you're seeing new voices being brought in. You're seeing exciting work being done. And some of the bigger companies go in and sort of cherry pick from that. But my issue about ballet overall is that somebody, everybody waits for permission to sort of, okay, this person is the person. That does not leave a lot of room for other women, other voices, et cetera. I think it's, it's, it's tricky to try to say that it's just this one thing. I think that there are multiple issues that continue to happen in the field and that people are so worried about revenue streams right now coming out of the pandemic and thinking of things like Serenade as like the safety net, right? That's kind of one of my catchphrases. But I, I think that there does need to be a change. I think there needs to be some bold moves here. I mean, we're a field based on creativity and we want to see that come back. And I think that I think that there are plenty of very incredible female emerging choreographers that that need to be commissioned at this point and kind of lead that path. Yeah, one thing that I, I sort of touched on it before, but I, I really feel strongly that the me, 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 mine, mine, mine model, my swan like my Romeo and Juliet, my, you know, whatever it is that model needs to disappear. It's like all these artistic directors attain respectability by putting their stamp on something like I did this. We are starting to see more collaboration, but I think for the art form and yeah, just physically for people to survive, things have gotten so expensive. They're going to have to start collaborating with other companies. I'm, I'm really surprised this hasn't happened more actually. The other other thing I'd observe overall, and this is just sort of a meta-analysis, is that very often artistic directors are not, are chosen for their star power mm-hmm. or for whom they know. And what you don't see them is really focusing on the community in which they exist. So you look at Tony Pimble at Eugene, you look at Victoria Morgan at Cincinnati, who's who's retiring, but I'm seeing the same commitment from Jody Gates. You see, you know, Paul Vasterling in Nashville, folks who actually try and get to know their community and commit to it, I think are going to be much more successful than the museum directors, the opera directors who are trying to impress their colleagues in London or Berlin. But that's a very different mindset. And again, that goes back to a different kind of training, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, building local roots is so important. All right, I'm going to change tacks a little bit to get into another one of your initiatives, the um, interview series that you have called Moving Forces Motherhood and Dance, which I know another of Becky's, Becky's projects here. Navigating <laughs> motherhood, challenging for women in all kinds of workplaces, but mothers and dance face just impossible obstacles. Yeah. So Becky, who are you talking to? What questions and issues are you hoping to address? 
Yeah. So first I had to think about it from this perspective, right? I'm a, I'm a dancer. I'm a dance researcher. I'm an academic. I'm a curator. So something for me, I always try to look at that perspective of how can I provide visibility to artists, but while really carefully considering like the conditions of the world that they're creating in. And one thing that I've noticed in the past year was an increased call for lactation room availability, family leave, childcare provided during rehearsals, performances, and even residency programs for families, which have been really incredible to see. So I really wanted to chat with mothers in the field to hear their perspectives and like a really candid reality of what it's like to be a mother in dance. And what are some of the recommendations that might have for us for a more inclusive um, workplace? So I'm talking to choreographers, artistic directors, academics, dancers, those in the commercial dance space, also in concerts. So we're thinking ballet dancers and also contemporary dancers, and even some former Broadway dancers. So getting a fuller scope of the dance field the outpouring of support for this program has actually been really overwhelming in such a great, incredible way. And it, for me, it just solidified the fact that we need massive change to support working mothers in the dance industry because the the structures are not there. Amen. I think people forget what an anomaly and how retrograde the United States is for not having a national family leave yep. elder care policy because it's not just kids, it's you know parental care, family mm-hmm. care, et cetera. But the United States is 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 really out there by itself um, in terms of the developed world, but even the developing world. And I I think we forget that right that there the safety you know the safety net is zero. It's you're on your own. And this is not a political issue, by the way, because I've heard folks on the left, the right, people throughout ballet world sort of say, "Well, you did it. You own it." Right. What have been some especially illuminating things that you've taken away from those conversations? That the system is not set up for mothers. I mean, just very candid, like very blunt. I I knew that going in, but to hear it after interview, after interview, after interview. I mean, I have another one today. I have another one next week. And the system is not set up for it. It isn't. I mean, having maybe having a lactation room, great. But what about when I'm in rehearsal? What about if my babysitter gets sick? Does that mean I can't go on tour? Does that mean I can't make it to rehearsal? Does that mean my understudy steps? That, you know, there's so many variables that the, the structure is not made for mothers. I also want to throw in from sort of the employer business side. It puts companies in a really rough position when it's all on them to figure things out. In other countries, there is affordable neighborhood, available daycare where people are compensated for taking care of your child. Ditto your elder. In the United States, it's all on the employer. And of course, with declining audiences and coming out of the pandemic, I understand why they're why they're nervous, right? And they're looking to their colleagues, what are you doing? How but I I wish we could get over this how much do we have to do mentality rather into let's get creative together. But that means partnership with your staff and your dancers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, gosh, themes throughout just applying the same creativity to administrative and programming practices that we do on stage. Look, look what you just said. All of that everywhere. <laughs> So, you know, as you've launched all of these initiatives, you've also been releasing, a, I mean, just a steady drumbeat of research reports, really an unbelievable amount of research. And you've referenced some of that already. But can you talk a little more about what's up next in your queue? I know for me, what's up next is, you know, we've done so much in the ballet sector that the research has grown tremendously 
So I think being able to expand upon our modern and contemporary company um, research is really important um, to us on the research team. So looking at maybe the largest 60 or the largest 75 modern and contemporary companies is something I think that we would like to do in the future and also conduct a similar ADED salary data bite um, for the modern and contemporary companies, just making sure that we're being more expansive um, beyond ballet where we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quick reminder to anybody who's listening, I am mostly still funding Dance Data Project. There is not a lot of money out there for anything to do with women and girls. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 1.6% of overall philanthropic funding goes to causes devoted to women and girls. Dance, by the way, is the least well-funded of performing arts generally. And I think that trickles down too. And we're one step away. So mm-hmm. we're doing the research, which we then hope other folks will use. But that's why we're investing so heavily in artificial intelligence and looking at collaborations with universities um, to give students an opportunity to use some of their coding computer programming skills, because I really prioritize paying my staff as well as I possibly can. But if we can automate some of this work, it's also a really good backstop to the work we're doing that's created by human beings. Mm -hmm. I don't know a better way to say that. There probably is a better way to say it. No, just efficient systems, I think, Liza. Like, I think you nailed it, you know? Like, how are we looking at how we're collecting data? What's the most beneficial? How can we be most efficient? And how are we pushing out reports that can really change the field? Like Liza has said, that we've had people, you know, take our data and say, hey, I need a salary change. (laughs) Yeah, like, they're being able to use it as ammunition. um, And that is really important to us as well. One of the things that we've started to do, by the way, is that we're just releasing today, and obviously this podcast is going to come out a little bit later, an artistic and executive director compensation report. We'd like to go deeper with that, but it's really important because not every company can perform analysis of of similar size companies, and that data exists, but it's not public. So I think it's important that all the stakeholders know how people are being paid if there's been some extraordinary pay increases, which we've seen. And then frankly, those companies that have, have bitten the bullet appropriately during the pandemic. And you know, we see a C-suite level cut in pay and good for them for, mm-hmm. for absorbing a little bit of the blow of the horrific um, impact of the pandemic. But we want to give people the tools to advocate for themselves. And that means, again, that we're not putting up a paywall. We're not trying to make money off. Correct. So if you're a small, if you're an artistic director or staff dancers at a company, you can look at our report now and see how your artistic director got paid, how your executive director got paid, and then the size of the budget overall in in the industry. And we just like to keep going with that into modern and contemporary. If eventually we could, I'm interested in exploring the world of commercial dance, which is apparently the Wild West. Oh, gosh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, data collection there will be very useful and a big adventure. Yeah, and I love this idea of the research reports as not just like alarm bells, but also tools that can be used by these companies. Yeah. So I guess the, the biggest question the one I'll close with is how can we help you? Like when it comes to improving gender equity in the dance field, what are the most important actions that dance leaders and other members of the dance community can be taking, should be taking? I mean, for me, it really is, how are you supporting women? Like we have to just keep supporting women in the field. And when we see these inequities, we have to call them out as they are. I think that's something 
that I love about DBP is that we actually don't call, we don't do the calling out, we just state the facts, right? Like we're very transparent about it. And then how are people using that data to make the field more equitable? That's that's the huge one for me. And just keep supporting women. They can't just be a check mark for you. It can't just be, we've done our equity work for the year. We hired one female choreographer. It has to go deeper than that. You have to be looking at every facet of your organization and see where those inequities lie. Yeah, I guess I'm going to start with a thank you to all of Dance Media. You all have been spectacular in terms of profiling and platforming our work. Overall, I think we're all on the same team here. We're all trying to make the art form better, more sustainable, more interesting. And I think it requires some coaxing over time. Um, I also have been in these boardrooms and they're full of very, very smart people who sometimes, somehow when they join a performing arts board, particularly in dance, seem to turn their brains off. You know, it's not okay just to show up at the gala, raise a ton of money and then hand it over and not ask any questions. I think board members, I think community members, I'm thinking in particular San Francisco Ballet's community and how they really were the impetus for change. It is possible to affect change as an audience member, as a donor, as a member of the board. I think using our statistics, if you're a company, that would be great. Also send people to our website. And if Melinda Gates or Mackenzie Scott is out there, we operate on a tiny budget. It, you can change the world if you really work hard at being efficient. And also if you have the best team in the world. <laughs> Liza and Becky, thank you both so much for coming on and for all of this just incredibly important work that you're doing with Dance Data Project. We sincerely, sincerely appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Margaret. Margaret. This is great. Thanks so much. One more big thanks to Liza and Becky. Please do visit dancedataproject.com where you can find all of DDP's research as well as information about its current projects and initiatives. And in the show notes, we have direct links to pages about the Raising the Bar curriculum, the Gender Equity Index, and the Moving Forces Motherhood and Dance series that you heard us talk about. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a headline rundown episode recapping all the top dance news stories. Until then, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing.